In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. We're six weeks from Election Day, and the AJC released a new survey of 1,150 likely Georgia voters. It's a snapshot of the state. It's not intended to predict the outcome, but... It shows a very, very tight race in Georgia, not just for the presidential contest, but for the U.S. Senate battles. And here to talk with me all about it is Tia Mitchell, the AJC Washington correspondent. Hey, Greg. Hey, we've got quite the barn burners here in Georgia, don't we? Yes, it's so close in so many races. It's going to be so interesting to see how things continue to unfold from here. Yeah, and let's set the stage, starting with the presidential race. Um, it couldn't be closer. Uh, the poll pegged Donald Trump at 47% and Joe Biden at 47%. We've seen lots of polls that show a close race, lots of polls showing Trump with a, you know, with what looks like a slight lead, but but within the par- margin of error. Uh, but this is the first major poll we've seen that shows it like literally neck and neck. Yes. And I think it's so interesting, you know, when we drill down, of course, we know that there's a partisan divide where People who identify as conservative or Republican are much more likely to support Trump. People who consider themselves Democrats or liberal, liberal, of course, we expect them to support Joe Biden. But then you drill down into like black people. Right now you have 85 percent of black people saying they support Joe Biden. Five percent say they support Trump. But then you look at white people and it's very flip flop. But I remember, you know, one of the things that you saw is that the fact that Joe Biden is almost to 30 percent of white voters is actually a good thing. Oh, that's huge for his campaign. If you look at historically um, in 2014, when Democrats were trying to you know, challenge uh, uh, Governor Deal and trying to win what was then an open seat for U.S. Senate, they were, their dream was to get to around 30 percent. I mean, that would have been that would have been a kind of a wipeout for, for Republicans if they got to 30 percent. This poll shows Joe Biden at about 30 percent of, of white support, uh, white, white voter support in Georgia. Um, Stacey Abrams kind of got close. She, she got to the high 20s. But Hillary Clinton back in 2016, exit polls showed she came nowhere near. She was at 21 percent in exit polls of Georgia. So if Joe Biden can get to 30 percent, um, like this poll suggests, um, it's going to be hard to see Donald Trump winning in Georgia. Now, there's a long way to go, and usually these things tighten even more. And the other thing this poll shows is a um, 
is is some you know some some legitimate support for libertarian candidates and still you know a small but still about one percent or so one and a half percent of undecided voters um, and I think those will both narrow considerably as uh, as November nears. Yeah, um, so interesting that you know when you break it down how. You know, there's a lot of talk in politics about identity politics and people throwing it around, but all politics is identity politics. And this race, you know, hinges so much on which candidate can build a coalition. And that's why it's harder for Trump, because his coalition is mostly, you know, white conservative voters who don't live in cities. And so there are fewer paths for him to build that coalition. Yeah. I asked the pollster to drill down even further for some more stories we're doing on white women in particular. Because what you, you mentioned um, is that, you know, we saw this in 16 and 18, is that counties that used to, Republican, rural Republican counties that used to go, let's say, 60 or 70 percent for Republican presidential or statewide candidates went 80 to 90 percent for Donald Trump and for Brian Kemp in 2016 and 2018, but there's only so much more votes that Republicans can ring out of those 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 areas, and so the, you know the the Metro Atlanta suburbs are, are, are a giant battleground here in 2020. We saw a lot of those areas tilt blue in 2016, and then for Stacey Abrams and state legislative candidates, they racked up a string of victories all over the North Atlanta suburbs. Our poll unfortunately doesn't break it out by geography. But I did ask broadly our pollster to, to give us some numbers about how white men and white women voted. And 70% of white of white men signaled they would support President Trump, but 63% of white women. So still a huge number, still nearly two-thirds, but again, a significant a statistical departure from white men and another thing that we'll be closely watching as the election gets closer. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You know, President Trump is now also set to visit Georgia on Friday. And this news comes, you know, hours after the AJC released its poll. It was already planned, um, but surely the president's seeing similar numbers in his own internals um, that show Georgia is a close state. And it's really interesting here because, look, I mean, f- for for Democrats, it would be a bonus win. If, G- if they can flip Georgia, it'd be huge. It'd be It'd be you know enormous for for democratic enthusiasm and confidence going into the next decade, but it's not a must win for Joe Biden. He's got multiple routes to to get to electoral victory um, by winning other states. But for President Trump, Georgia's a must win. There's really no great path for him forward if he somehow loses Georgia. So just the fact that Democrats are getting Trump to play defense is a major win for them. And the fact that he has to come here rather than spend more time in Wisconsin or Florida or or wherever or the other you know top tier battleground states, Democrats are, 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 are congratulating themselves today over that. So that's my question. You know, this is my first presidential year covering Georgia. 
how rare is it for the candidates to pay attention to Georgia? I mean, I'm assuming, particularly in the primaries, Georgia gets a lot of attention. But when you get into general election mode, not so much. But, you know, did how how rare is this for Trump to be campaigning in Georgia? It's rare. Contrast this with 2016, where after the primaries, neither Hillary Clinton nor President Trump came to Georgia for a campaign event. Um, there was a visit by President Trump, you know, uh, plenty before the, the 2016 race, but not in the run up um, of, of the actual general election. And same thing with Hillary Clinton. Um, so that shows you, and there was no pandemic back then either. So they had lots of time to come visit um, without without having to shut down the you know campaign shutdowns and all the uh, all the other issues we saw here during the pandemic this time around. And then back even in you know 2012 and 2008, there were very few visits from top line um, candidates. Uh, and when they did visit, it would basically be for a fundraiser, and then they'd skedaddle. Um, so the very fact that Trump has to play defense here. Is a huge is a huge victory for for Democrats and and as you as you alluded to, uh, rare in Georgia. I mean, you're used to Florida where candidates basically spend weeks. <laughs> you, you you hardly go a week without a visit. Here in Georgia, not so much. Yeah, very interesting. So that's something. I mean, and again, it's not saying that Trump is out yet because this is his race to lose, as you put it. But the fact that he is campaigning in Georgia does, I mean, like you said, he could be somewhere else. A state, Florida's the must win state. Wisconsin, you know, um, Pennsylvania. And yet he'll be in Atlanta. And what we're told, and as of this taping, we still don't have official word, um, but I'm relying on three different sources uh, who have direct knowledge. But what we're told is that it'll be an event in Metro Atlanta highlighting his Black Voices for Trump initiative that he launched. Me and you covered this way back in November. It seems like a, a decade ago, but way back in November of last year um, uh, when he, he launched this 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 uh, initiative in, in Georgia. And we're also told it will focus on his criminal justice policy. I'm not sure exactly what elements of that policy will focus on at this moment, but um, he is trying to undercut Joe Biden's support among black voters. And in Georgia, that's particularly important, as we all have been talking about, because African-American voters are are the cornerstone of the Democratic coalition in Georgia. And let's be clear, they are trying to get black men. Black women can't get them. I mean, you know, you can get a few, can't get a lot. Black men, and, and as our poster drills down, that might be a good area I think that 8% of undecided black voters that was in our poll, I think that's a lot of black men because some of the messaging uh, and some of the uh, things that conservatives have used to attack certain things that have been bubbling up has been targeted at black men. The criminal justice reform, the First Step Act, that's a target at black men, justifiably so, you know, because we know black men are more likely to be in the criminal justice system and affected by the sentencing laws and things like that. But even the attacks on the Black Lives Matter organization, pointing out their stance on LGBTQ issues, pointing out their stance on affirming, quote unquote, non-traditional families, those are... Um, very subtle, uh, very subtle um, attempts to appeal, 
a conservative message that resonates with black men. Yep. And that's also a reason why for Biden's first big advertising push in Georgia, he's, he's been on the airwaves here for a while, but his first big, you know, multi-million dollar expansion was launched just a few days ago. And who did it target? It was aimed directly at Af- uh, black men. It showed, it featured um, several uh, black men in a barbershop talking about Joe Biden's criminal justice policies, talking about his, his promise to uh, end, uh, uh, private prisons and and ban the box and and um, reform cash bail systems and so because he realizes that yes he'll overwhelmingly win black men there's no doubt about it he might get eighty you know eighty to ninety percent right now in a lot of polls including the AJC's poll but what he that won't cut it for him in states like Georgia he'll need to get ninety percent plus of of black voters overall and certainly higher proportion of of black men to go to go match black women. Who, as you mentioned, have always been the the foundation of the, the of the Democratic Party here in Georgia. Yes, for sure, and that's something for us definitely to watch because, again, down the ballot, it'll have implications as well. Yeah, let's talk about down the ballot because um, we also polled the Georgia's two U.S. Senate races, and let's let's go with the uh, Purdue seat first. Um, just as close as the presidential race, uh, Purdue at 47%, Ossoff at 45%. That's within the poll's margin of error of four percentage points. So, and it, and it mirrors every other poll we've seen from a, from a, uh, from a credible outlet that shows a very tight race between those two candidates. Um, the dynamics here mirror the presidential race. Um, Ossoff still has work to do to um, uh, his support among African-American voters is in the mid 80s, but he wants to push it up to to higher 90s. And there's still with with uh, with Senator Perdue, I think one of his glaring weaknesses is that independent voters are pretty much split. 31 percent, 31 percent between Perdue and Ossoff. The rest go toward the libertarian candidate or undecided. And that's an issue for David Perdue because independence in Georgia tend to back Republican candidates, at least traditionally. And so he'll want to get those numbers. He must get those numbers up in order to defeat Ossoff in November. Right. Because, again, we know the trend is a lot of people, you know, historically we think of independent voters being like this small sliver. Or I, I feel like I used to think that way. And you have to rethink that because so many people now identify as a member of neither the Republican or the Democratic Party. So that's independent voting block has become pretty substantial. And and so you're right. Every being able to get a, a bigger piece of that independent voting block is going to be very pivotal, particularly in a close race. Now, in Georgia's other U.S. Senate race, because, of course, our listeners know we have two. This one's very different. It's a special election, which means all the candidates are on the same ballot. And boy, is it unsettled. Um, Kelly Leffler is at 24%. Um, so she has the what seems like the plurality. Um, and that that also reflects some recent polls that show her with a uh, with with a lead, um, but not a big one. Congressman Collins, her fiercest Republican rival, is around 21%, 20, he's at 20.5%. And Robert Warnock is just behind them at essentially 20.5% as well. He's at 20.3%. So they're they're both hovering around the 20% mark and Further back is Matt Lieberman, who's at 11%, and um, some other candidates are in the single digits. 
But that tells me two things. One is that Kelly Leffler is starting her, her, her giant spending is starting to pay off. She's spent, she's promised to spend $20 million plus in this race. And there's other super PACs that are coming in and spending millions of dollars already for her. And as well as the national Republican senatorial committee. So it's starting to pay off. She's, she's got about a quarter of the vote, but Doug Collins is still right in there. Um, and he is, he does not have nearly the same financial firepower, but he does have uh, name recognition. He is able to get on Fox news whenever he wants to, 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 to make some news. And uh, he's still, you know, supported by a swath of the grassroots activists in Georgia. Yeah, I think what we've been seeing, and I'm sure we're going to get to it, but this race has become, you know, like a fight between the, the, the part of the race that on the Republican side, which is Leffler and Collins, and they're both battling to like out conservative each other, out Trump each other. And I, I feel like the more we see, particularly Doug Collins, uh, you know, position himself as, you know, the super conservative, but like with some like, you know, all this now he's, you know, attacking Stacey Abrams and attacking Netflix and attacking uh, streaming companies. It's like there's a ceiling there, too. You know, if mm-hmm. you've done everything you can to like convince people I'm the most conservative and you're still not breaking through. If you look at our survey results, you know, amongst people who identify as Republican, Leffler has 48%, Collins has thir- has 40%. And, you know, amongst people who can who say that they're very conservative, they're kind of evenly split, but the rest of the party on the conservative spectrum are going towards Leffler. So it's like, how much room does Doug Collins have to like continue to run to the right in in hopes of clawing away at Leffler's support? And if he doesn't have much more room, then he's got to realize it is what he is. It is what it is, and he might not be able to compete in the long run against her. I think that's and what that, I'm trying to say. Can he? Yeah. She has all the money. As long as President Trump stays out, and there's no indication that he's going to not stay out at this point. So if he, if you don't, you can't depend on Trump. Leffler has all the money. Leffler has the in our um, SC SC <laughs> all the acronyms. All the yeah. It's like where can Collins go to get to where he needs to be to actually win this race? And the money game hasn't even come close to peaking, right? Um, there's going to be tens of millions of dollars more spent between now and November from Leffler and her allies. So you're exactly right. Uh, at, at some point, um, Doug Collins starts running out of options. But as of now, he's still within striking distance, and not just our poll, but every other poll I've seen. The difference between this side of the race and the Democratic side of the race is very stark wow. because – in the Democratic side, and we're saying sides because they're all on the same ballot, and I know there's some concerns from Democrats that, that both Leffler and Collins will end up in the runoff, but I don't see that happening whatsoever. Um, I think that uh, just my personal opinion as I watch this, as I'll put on my pundit hat, as 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 um, Reverend Warnock continues to spend money on TV ads and, 
and and he has every endorsement of any significant political figure in Washington or or or, or Georgia who has taken a side in this race. He's got party backing. He's got a lot of institutional support. As he continues to to spend and get his name out there, he'll continue to rise in the polls. For a while there, the narrative was that he could not distance himself from from Matt Lieberman, the son of the former vice presidential contender who is running kind of a shoestring campaign. Um, And polls showed them kind of either neck and neck or some even showed Lieberman in front. Well, this is the AJC polls, the latest that shows that not to be the case anymore. Right. Um, he is Warnock is doubling, is basically doubling Matt Lieberman and then the other Democrat uh, in the race, Ed Tarver, the other prominent Democrat in the race, Ed Tarver is way behind at five percent. So that dynamic is starting to change, and the analysts I talk to fully expect, and I'm talking from both parties, who, um, including Republican campaigns, fully expect Warnock to be in the catbird seat by the time this is over, maybe maybe high twenties, low thirties. That hasn't stopped Democrats, though, from calling on Tarver and Lieberman to get out of the race and to potentially give Warnock a shot at an outright victory, which is a very, very slim possibility, even if they did get out of the race right now. Right. And that's that's my concern. You know, if we know that there is a likely chance, especially, you know, we're going to get third quarter fundraising reports, you know, in the next couple of, in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's likely going to show Warnock has a lot of money. Lieberman has a good amount of money, but probably not as much as Warnock and probably mostly out of state, you know, and it's probably going to show Ed Tarver has very little. And so the pressure is going to mount for Ed Tarver to get out of the race. And we know that's going to bump Warnock. Lieberman it doesn't look like he's going anywhere, but I think we're going to see people coalesce, Democrats coalescing around Warnock. And again, that's going to squeeze out. It's going to make it, you know, pretty, pretty likely that Warnock can land in the runoff. So the question is going to be what happens on the other side. You got it. Exactly. I mean, Warnock is going to, um, there, there's not as, to me, I know that out there in Twitterverse and elsewhere, there's a lot of speculation about Warnock and concerns about him. But to me, he's going to end up in this runoff, in a, in a runoff spot um, for the for one of the reasons you mentioned. I mean, look, even if Lieberman and Tarver decided right now to get out of the race, and I just interviewed them, I don't know, a day or so ago for a story about how they're not leaving the race. Mm-hmm. So if they did, it would surprise me. But even if they got out of the race, their names are still on the ballots that are being mailed out to to more than a million Georgia voters. Um, so, you know, th- they're still going to get a, a fraction of the vote. Now, the reason why those calls have really intensified is, of course, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Um, Republicans have promised to hold the vote this year. They haven't said whether it's before the election or after the election, but they promised to hold the vote this year. And there is, you know, in, Al- in Arizona, uh, a Democrat running for an, a special election Senate race is in, in the uh, in front by about eight to 10 points in recent polls. So if that Democrat, uh, Mark Kelly wins that race, um, the rules of a special election mean that they could be seated as, as soon as the election is certified, which would be in November rather than in January. So it cuts into the Republican margin and Democrats here in Georgia hope that the, the same rules apply in Georgia. And so they hope that if Warnock can consolidate all of Democratic support he has an outside chance at winning this race outright if those two guys get out of the race. And to me, to me, that is very, 
that is very far out there because Democrats have not won a a Georgia statewide race outright in a dozen years. Um, so it's been a while since that's happened. And those guys' names are still going to be on absentee ballots. And they're still going to be, even if they get out, there's still 15 or so other candidates, uh, what am I yeah. thinking, 18 or so other candidates on the race commanding attention. And Warnock's name is the very last one on the ballot. So that's asking a lot. It's expecting a lot. I'm not saying there's no chance of it happening, but I'm saying there's a slim chance of it happening. And there's also so far been no signs from either Lieberman or Tarver that they will leave this race. They feel like they feel like they have every right, just as much right as Reverend Warnock uh, to run. And in Tarver's case, he has a lot more political experience than both of them. He's a former state senator. He's a military veteran. And he was Obama's appointee for a federal prosecutor gig out in, uh, in Augusta, in Savannah. So he feels like uh, if anyone should stay in the race, it should be him. Yeah. And I think, you know, it also doesn't help that even if Tarver and Lieberman were to bow out, that still, it's still unlikely that Warnock could win outright because there are so many other candidates. It still would be yep. hard to get to 50% with so many other candidates. So the incentive for them, you know, for those who say, well, if you guys get out, maybe Warnock can win is such a long shot. You know, I think I think Tarver can get out more likely than Lieberman because again, Tarver also has like, you know, he has people who can call him up and, and you know, put the guilt trip on him. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, and say, yeah. come on for the good of the party and you know how this happens, you know how this works. Look at the writing on the wall, be a team player. And he, you know, I think that could appeal to Tarver. I guess there's just no sense of urgency, even with right. the, with the Ginsburg vacancy, because this we've all been writing since the get-go that this race is headed towards a runoff. And right. and and as we've been talking about, even if they get out, it's still it's still probably, you know, in 99.99% likelihood heading toward a runoff. Um, so uh, and that's in all my conversations with with both of those candidates, that's kind of how they see it too. And um, you know, it's 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 there's there are some parallels to 2017. Doing this special elections in the sixth district when when there was something like twenty one candidates in that race. No, there's eighteen candidates in that race, if I remember correctly. And Ossoff was the leading Democrat, um, but there was a few other Democrats in the race, and there was like I don't know a dozen Republicans just beating each other, just brutally beating each other. And there was really no none of them were focused on Ossoff. And in that race, um, there was there was the, Ossoff felt like his best path was winning it outright. Um, in that first one, rather than a runoff. Mm-hmm. And he got really close. He got to 48. And there was a lot of pressure on the kind of you know lesser known Democrats in that race. There was a former state senator who was running just to get out. But even if they had got out, he still would have gotten to maybe 40. I think it was about 49%. He still wouldn't have won it outright. But he would have gotten a little bit closer. Um, but in this race, is very different. It's not the 6th District, which was a suburban district starting to change politically. This is still the state, a statewide race. And there's still so many other candidates in, even if they get out. So I don't know. I'm not convinced. Uh, but we certainly that, – that doesn't mean we're not writing about it. And we've written about it twice this week. Right. And we'll probably write about it more um, as the pressure intensifies on, on those guys to, to jump out. Um, because we asked a lot of other questions in this poll. Um, and I know, I know Tia, you, you jumped into a, a separate story on, on the protest and what, what Georgians said about their support or lack thereof 
for the, the protest demanding uh, racial justice and equality. Yes. And that is like so many things. Again, it shows the fault lines in our in our political system today. You know, black people and other pe- people whose racial background, they they either identified as black or non-white were much more likely to say they supported the protests. We asked, which question concerns you more? The police brutality issues highlighted by the protests, or were you more concerned when protests turned violent? And that question had the same types of divisions. People who identified as black or non-white said the police brutality concerned them more White respondents to the poll said protests that turned violent concerned them more. And I found in looking at our survey results, you know, younger voters were much more likely to support the protests and to say that they felt Joe Biden would be stronger addressing racial issues than white voters or older voters. And so, again, it's, it's, it's those fault lines that on race issues even there's division amongst voters on how they perceive these issues of the protests and racial inequality and police brutality. Yeah, we talked to one respondent who basically said she 100% supports the protests, but is 150% against the violence. And, and you know, that speaks to another finding. Were you surprised that, that 57% of Georgians say overall, broadly, that they support the the, the social justice movement, the, the, the protests that after... Um, after the police killing in Minnesota? Think, I'm not surprised because it's hard to say you don't support racial equality. It's hard to say you support police brutality, you know, and George Floyd's death being caught on video, being very disturbing to most people who watched it. There's very little room for debate. But the nuance that you just mentioned is is is, I think, where the divides are, because you know, there are people who talk to us about, well, we don't want cities to burn and we don't want people being attacked and we don't want property damage. And again, very few people would say that they want that. But the, the question is, do you think that property damage and violence in cities burning symbolizes the protests? And for the reality is the vast majority of the protests were peaceful. Even in Atlanta, there were protests every day for weeks on end. Yes, there was property damage in certain protests and there was, you know, scuffles and things that broke out at some of the protests. But that does not even represent the vast majority of the protests in the city of Atlanta, let alone all the other cities in Georgia that also had protests, you know, Um, and, and that's where the divide is. That's where the nuance is that shows that shows that people perceive things differently based on whether they're white or non-white, based on whether they're liberal or conservative, and even based on their age. And that all pivots back to the presidential race. One of the other questions we asked asked is, and I'll read it verbatim, regardless of how you intend to vote, who do you think would do a better job of addressing racial inequality? And Biden had 51 to Trump's 41. So that's a 10-point gap. But if you drill down a little closer, um, among white voters, uh, 58% said Trump was handling it better. 33% said Biden's handling it better. And then among black voters, it was 87 Biden, 5% 
Trump. So, and then there's similar breakdowns among Republicans and Democrats, and 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 a majority of independents feel like Biden's handling it better. So, you can see those fault lines too very clearly in that poll over that question as well. Right, and and again, and and although it doesn't exactly match with our questions about who people plan to vote for, you see that those divisions are just one of the many topics that shows where Biden is perceived to be stronger and that can affect, you know, the outcome of the race. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there. There's so much more in the poll, though, that we'll be covering. Um, We're charting out our plans. We probably will have a dozen or so different stories that are at least informed by the poll. And of course, shortly after it came out, we found out that President Trump is visiting um, I'm sure that, as as I said before, I'm sure that his internals are, uh, at least from what I've heard, show a similar dynamic, and he cannot afford to lose Georgia. There's just no, there's just there's no realistic way he can win the presidency if he loses the state of Georgia and its 16 electoral college votes. So, battleground, here we come, Tia. Battleground. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,